It is January, 1897. The clock has hit midnight, and the final edition of the New York Journal has gone to press. William Randolph Hearst, who runs the newspaper, is still at his desk. He is on the trail of a high-stakes story that hasn't quite come together yet. Just then, an editor bursts into Hearst's office, waving a scrap of paper. Boss, it's a cable from Havana, Frederick Remington. Finally. Three months ago, Hearst sent Remington, an artist, and Richard Harding Davis, one of his best reporters, down to Cuba on his private yacht, the Vamoose. Their orders? Nose around for any sign of an uprising being put down by Spain. The Spanish have ruled Cuba for centuries, but recently, the Cubans have mounted a series of armed rebellions. Their conflict has gotten so bad that Spain sent 150,000 troops to the island to quiet things down. All right, lay it on me. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound too good. For what I'm paying them, it better be. That payment would be $5,000 a month each, because in Cuba's political drama, Hearst senses the makings of a blockbuster. The United States has mostly recovered from the depression that followed the panic of 1893, but the national economy is still lagging. Hearst is convinced a war could be the economic shot in the arm the country needs, but the U.S. would need a reason first. A smoking gun. The editor reads the cable. Uh, It doesn't say much. Everything quiet. Stop. No trouble here. Stop. Will be no war. Stop. Wish to return. Stop. (laughs) Take this down and wire it to Remington. I want you to wire it word for word. Please remain. You furnish the pictures. I'll furnish the war. The editor nods obediently and hurries off to transmit the message. It's a telegram that will change the direction of America and open up vast new possibilities for the ambitious Hearst. Once again, Hearst is ahead of the curve. He's not going to wait and write about an explosion if it happens. He's already bought and assembled a collection of powder kegs. Now, well, now it's just a matter of someone lighting the fuse. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. 
I'm David Brown. We're continuing our series on Hearst versus Pulitzer, two newspaper tycoons whose rivalry changed American media forever. You furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war. Hearst's legendary response to Remington has lived on, but the actual telegrams verifying the exchange never surfaced. No matter what Hearst actually said, what he believed is undeniably true. You're listening to Episode 4, War Drums. Just 100 miles from the U.S., Cuba has been pushing for independence from its Spanish overlords for decades. Each time Spain has responded with brutal oppression, the island's sugar industry makes it too valuable for Spain to just give it up. In 1897, Prime Minister Antonio Canovas del Castillo doubles down in a speech that shows just how hard Spain will fight to keep Cuba in its dwindling empire. The Spanish nation is disposed to sacrifice to the last peseta of its treasure and to the last drop of its blood of the last Spaniard before consenting that anyone snatch from it even one piece of its territory. A short time later, Del Castillo is assassinated by an Italian anarchist. His death plunges Spain and its territories into a period of confusion. The U.S. has not gotten involved in the conflict in Cuba, but many Americans embrace Cuba as a freedom-loving country whose people are being brutally oppressed by corrupt Spanish imperialists clinging to power. Hearst sees a win-win military intervention with both a human rights purpose and a way to stimulate the economy. Hearst has more boots on the ground in Cuba and better intel on the rebellion than the government or the U.S. Navy. All he needs is a tip from one of his special commissioners on the island. That's the trumped-up term he uses for journal reporters, by the way. Makes him sound almost like diplomats. Every one of them knows the goal. They want to uncover proof of a cause worth fighting for. They want to persuade the White House to act. By August of 1897, the rebellion has dragged on for months with periodic coverage in the American press. But the situation has become as stagnant as the humid air parked over the eastern seaboard. Hearst is desperate for his ship to come in. On the island of Cuba, mosquitoes swarm inside a notorious women's prison. They're carrying yellow fever, whose gruesome symptoms include eventually liquefying the body's major organs. In Spanish, yellow fever is known by a different name, vomito negro, black vomit. A reporter from the New York Journal has followed a tip from a local to the front gates of the prison. After some fast talk with the guards, he arranges for a visit with a young girl. The guards allow him five minutes to sit with her in a dank common room. The girl is only 17 years old. She has dark hair, striking features, and almond-shaped eyes. Ma'am, thank you for meeting me. My name is George Bryson, and I'm a reporter at the New York Journal. May I ask, uh, how did you get locked up here, a girl of your age? 
My uncle is the leader of the revolution. We've been making plans for a coup. But then, they picked me up when I was walking. Uh-huh. Let me guess, a prostitution rap? Yes, that's right. Those bastards. Well, don't worry. I'm gonna help get you out of here. The girl's name is Evangelina Cisneros. She's behind bars for a politically motivated prostitution charge at the moment. But soon, she will be a cause celeb and the toast of New York City. Back in New York, Sam Chamberlain, the journal's managing editor, receives a telegram from the reporter down in Havana. Chamberlain brings it in to Hearst's office. Hey, boss, did you see this cable from Bryson? <clears throat> Evangelina Cisneros, pretty girl of 17 years, related to President of Cuban Republic, is to be transferred from Cuba to a prison on the African coast to serve a 20-year sentence. Look at this, look at this. Remington sent a sketch. Hearst takes the page. The girl is beautiful. He slaps his knee and jumps to his feet. Ha! Sam, we've got Spain now. Hearst strides into the newsroom. My good people, may I have your attention? I have your new assignment. Drop whatever you're doing and tell me everything there is to know about Evangelina Cisneros. Uh, who is she? The pride of the Cuban Revolution, that's who. And the hope of this newspaper and the entire U.S. survey. Two reporters look at each other, eyebrows raised. Anything you say, boss. The key point for Hearst, and soon for his readers, is Evangelina's appearance. One early report calls her the Madonna of an old master. She's inspired with life, but plunged into Hades. To Hearst... Well, Evangelina is the very picture of a damsel in distress, the perfect symbol of Spain's exploitation of the Cuban people. The crusade to free her surpasses any of Hearst's previous self-promotional campaigns. Staffers soon grow cynical about their boss's fervor. One reporter mocks Hearst behind his back for behaving as though he's Sir Galahad rescuing a helpless maiden. Hearst's coverage embraces the most salacious element of the story. Evangelina, the journal reports, has resisted the sexual advances of a leering prison commander. The paper anoints her the Cuban Joan of Arc. Hearst goes out and gathers letters of support for her cause from prominent women, including Clara Barton and Mrs. Jefferson Davis. A petition drive to set her free racks up 10,000 signatures. At cocktail parties, Hearst holds court and works Evangelina into every conversation. One of his so-called special commissioners in Cuba has gotten hold of her prison diary. Hearst orders it serialized in the journal. Evangelina tells all, read her Cuban prison diary only in the New York Journal. Thousands of women across the country sign petition to free the girl martyr. Evangelina is ultimately freed and it's thanks to the journal. The paper actually engineers her escape from prison by resorting to a tried-and-true tactic. The reporters bribe the guards. While the headlines blare and copy spills as if this is all breaking news, in fact, it's all elaborate stagecraft engineered by Hearst himself. The journal is covering itself, promoting what it did from the prison gates in Cuba to the streets of New York City. The journal flies Evangelina to New York for a grand coming-out party. 
thousands cheer Evangelina in an open-air rally at Madison Square Park. Newly liberated and dressed by Hearst in a white couture gown, Evangelina dines on steak dinner at Delmonico's surrounded by socialites. Stories about her U.S. trip are bannered across the top of the front page for days. Why should America go to war against Spain? Evangelina is Hearst's answer. The journal takes pains to note that there are thousands more Cubans, just like Evangelina, still rotting in Spanish prisons. If there's any rallying cry Americans respond to, it's that primal call to champion the rights of the unjustly accused. But Hearst has succeeded in causing many readers to believe that Evangelina alone is enough of a reason to go to war. How does Joseph Pulitzer feel about the spectacle Hearst has created? Well, a few doors down Park Row, Pulitzer is stewing in his office. He clenches and unclenches his fists. His doctors have told him to do these kinds of exercises to relieve his chronic bouts of anxiety. But for Pulitzer, this prescription only seems to get him more wound up. He indignantly reads the journal's sensational coverage aloud to one of his editors. Fireworks are bursting and hissing in the air. The band is playing the Cuban anthem. Every man has doffed his hat and the shouting of the crowd continues. The girl stands like a beautifully chiseled statue, motionless, awed. He tosses the paper down on the desk. A beautifully chiseled statue? Ridiculous. Uh-huh. Hearst doesn't even understand what war is. I do. Pulitzer knows the human toll of war. In fact, he was born a year before the Hungarian Revolution of 1848, and growing up in its aftermath, he experienced daily life under martial law. As a young man, he served in the Civil War on the Union side, fighting in bloody battles at Appomattox and in the Shenandoah Valley. Hearst, on the other hand, sees it as just a financial opportunity. He's like an overgrown kid excitedly pushing toy soldiers around a map of the world. Pulitzer wonders how he's come so far from the simpler crusades back in St. Louis. Back in those days, a story about a city clerk embezzling $200 would have the town up in arms. It wouldn't cause battleships to sail across the oceans. But Pulitzer knows he's not working in some ivory tower, not now. He can't afford to stay above the fray as Hearst's journal continues to outsell the world thanks to peddling the war narrative. Pulitzer walks into the newsroom and stops at the city desk to check in with his editors. What are we hearing from Washington? Has, has President McKinley had any reaction to this prison nonsense? Uh, we just got a cable from the D.C. Bureau. They spoke with the speaker... Apparently, they're ready to call an emergency session any day now. Hmm. A war vote. That's right. As soon as they have a reason to vote. One way for us to respond to Hearst's bleeding heart stories is to break some real news. Let's tell the Bureau to send us ten inches of copy for the late edition. Well, I think it's good we're getting in the game, boss. Ignoring it won't do us any good. Pulitzer's conscience is troubled by the all-out war lust he sees. But he knows that war with Spain will sell papers, bringing a huge financial windfall. And that means security. That means jobs. A proud franchise his son, Joseph Jr., can run one day. 
After draining his resources in a price war with Hearst, well, he welcomes the unexpected revenue. The pretext for war remains murky, but his business rivalry with a journal is arousing his immigrant pride in being a self-made success. For Pulitzer, principles are everything, but so is beating Hearst. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance, or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. It is the night of February 15th, 1898. The wind is calm and the waters of Havana Harbor are still. The USS Maine dropped anchor in the harbor a couple of weeks earlier, part of a US Navy deployment designed to ratchet up the pressure on Spain. Only a couple of night watchmen stand on the deck. Captain Charles Sigsby and nearly 300 seamen under his command are asleep below decks. Captain Sigsby is writing a letter to his wife. It has been an uneventful day, and the waters are still. That will change in a flash. Sigsby hears a brief shout from the watchmen, who've spotted ripples in the water. Before he can make sense of it all, his cabin and the entire ship are rocked by a violent explosion. The massive blast has ripped a large hole in the hull of the battleship. Sigsby makes it to the deck. He looks down to the water and sees utter chaos. Hang on, men. Swim toward the dock. A news bulletin hits the wires. The Navy warship has been destroyed in a Cuban harbor. More than 260 American seamen are missing and presumed dead. The explosion did its damage in the blink of an eye but the controversy over who blew up the main and what the U.S. should do about it will drag on for weeks. Washington and the nation debates whether it was the Spanish or just an accident. Experts painstakingly conduct an investigation, but it's like holding back a dam trying to tell the public to be patient. President William McKinley implores people not to jump to any conclusions. Back in the World Newsroom, Pulitzer is fretting over an editorial. He suspects Spain was behind the sinking of the Maine. And the time, he thinks, 
has come. After months of resisting, he decides to make the case for war, but rationally, without the flim-flam and excesses of Hearst. Pulitzer begins dictating the editorial to a clerk. God forbid that the world should ever advocate an unnecessary war. <clears throat> Boss, uh, one suggestion. Let's make the point that this should be done efficiently, and nothing that needs to drag out for years. Absolutely. With these islands captured, the affair will be over and Cuba free. It would hardly be a war, but it would be significant. In the journal newsroom, Hearst holds a copy of the world. Have you guys seen this? Even ponderous Pulitzers on board the train. Send a fleet to Cuba and Puerto Rico, he says. In and out. Bing, bang, boom. There's a Bronx cheer from the assembled editors. Well, it takes a lot to budge the old codger. But credit where it's due. He snaps his fingers to an editor who gets ready to take dictation. Our attack of the journal will be much sharper, of course. This is our lead editorial, and I want it teased out front. Get this down. <clears throat> a good war might free Cuba, wipe out Spain, and frighten to death the meanest tribe of money-worshipping parasites that has ever disgraced a decent nation. On the streets, the newsboys yell out the lustful headlines. Cut Spain down to size. McKinley needs to put Spain in its place. Read all about it in the journal. Later that day, Hearst stands up from the table with that far away look he gets when he's in a creative mode. What a day. <laughs> we have all the elements. Now, we just need a front page headline. Something that'll really sing. The editors gather around the city desk until inspiration strikes. How about Remember the Maine? After a pause, an editor chimes in with a topper. Remember the Maine? The hell with Spain! Hearst beams and raises his fist triumphantly. Remember the Maine, the hell with Spain. <laughs> Run it. Although they both now support U.S. intervention in Cuba, Hearst and Pulitzer are, as usual, on different wavelengths. New Yorkers can understand that, even with their eyes closed. Investigators still puzzled by Cuba blast. Congress cautions McKinley. Read about it in the world. U.S. warships out for revenge. A dozen of them fill Cuba's harbor. Read it in the journal. On April 20th, 1898, Congress declares war. Even though Hearst, Pulitzer, and many other newspaper editors have been beating the war drums, plenty of people remain unconvinced of the need to send U.S. forces to Cuba. Wall Street opposes the idea. Investors and businessmen say the economy remains fragile. They worry about the country getting distracted, fighting a war an ocean away. Other companies, like those that rely on Cuba's sugar industry, are lobbying for the U.S. to intervene, and a growing number of Americans, just three or four generations removed from their own revolution, are inspired by the Cuba Libre movement. Soon, it's not just the newspapers making noise about freeing the Cubans being the right thing to do. The Spanish-American War, as it comes to be known, lasts only a few weeks. American forces overwhelm Spain. It's a route that, truth be told, doesn't make nearly as good a story as the frenzy building up to the conflict. Hearst and Pulitzer have been waging their own battle from a distance. 
The two moguls will meet in person only one time, and not until many years after the war. But that doesn't diminish the sweetness of any day's victory, and this day belongs to Hearst. He pours champagne for his editors, clerks, anyone with an empty glass. It's an impromptu celebration for a job well done. The journal is reaching new heights. Our circulation just hit a new record. Well done, everyone. Congratulations all round. An editor pops in. I don't want to interrupt the good times, but we need a new headline for the A1. I've got one. <laughs> How do you like the journal's war? It's been a boon for both papers. Hearst and Pulitzer have quadrupled their normal sales. But it comes with a cost. Their tactics in manipulating government and public support for the war has opened a Pandora's box. The public's distrust of the media will dog them for years. Uptown, Pulitzer is in the parlor of his 73rd Street townhouse sitting with his wife, Catherine. They're sharing a rare, quiet moment. The Upper East Side may be quiet, but a storm is brewing inside Pulitzer. His wife treads delicately. At lunch today, the whole table next to us got up and left the restaurant when they noticed I was sitting there. People are quite upset about this yellow journalism, Joseph. Hearst is the yellow one. I, I still think fighting for Cuba was the right thing to do, Catherine. You have to understand it. And our reporters found evidence that a Spanish mine did hit that battleship. Do you have to call them murderers, though, on the front page? We sometimes tell unpleasant truths, Catherine. This is what newspapers must never be afraid to do. Catherine has no reply. She can see how torn her husband is as he continues to wrestle with his role in stoking the war. Soon, the world and the journal both see their circulation and revenue numbers return to pre-war levels. But the paper's heavy spending on the war effort soon catches up to them. Hearst and Pulitzer need to cut costs to erase the deficit. But of all the places they could lighten their bells, they decide to target the most vulnerable link in the world in the journal distribution chain. The street hawkers, responsible for putting their product in the hands of the public. The newsies. After all, how likely are these ragamuffin kids to push back? Well, as it turns out, pretty likely. On the next episode, the pitched battle over the young hearts and souls of the newspaper game. It does not go how Hearst and Pulitzer thought it might. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. We invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art, and you'll also see some offers from our sponsors. We hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you're hearing, we'd love for you to give us a five-star rating and review us. Be sure to tell your friends and show them how to subscribe while you're at it. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey. I'm your host, David Brown. Dade Hayes wrote today's story. He's a contributing editor for Deadline and the author of Open Wide, 
Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Jenny Lauer. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producers are Marshall Louie and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. Hey, I'm Mike Corey, the host of Wandery's show, Against the Odds. In our next season, I'm telling an amazing true story about American sailors who wrecked their ship off the coast of Africa in 1815. They're captured by a nomadic tribe. To escape, they will need to cross the largest hot desert in the world to reach civilization. They will battle against blistering heat, inhumane conditions, hunger, and thirst. Their heroic fight to get home will have a much greater impact than just on their own lives. It will influence a future president and change the course of American history in ways that are still felt today. This is the true story of the men who made it, and it's one that you don't want to miss. Subscribe to Against the Odds on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now.